So yes, uh, Romans chapter 9, verses uh, 14 to 29. So as we've looked at Romans chapter 1 to 8, we've seen Paul explaining his wonderful plan, um, God's wonderful plan to save sinners through the work of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And this culminates at the end of chapter 8 with this reflection on the magnitude of God's love, just how wonderful God's love really is. I love it, it's so intense that Paul writes at the end of chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of the Messiah, we could say. And then he concludes at the end by saying, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. And so he's transfixed by the blessing, the love that the Messiah has brought to the world. But then there's a dynamic. Because if the Messiah has brought such blessing to the world, why is it that the very nation that was given the Messianic promises is, hasn't entered into the blessing that the Messiah has brought? How is it that God made these promises to Abraham and to his descendants? Uh, and that there would be a Messiah that would bring blessing to the world? And that very nation, the Jews, just haven't enjoyed the blessing that the Messiah brought. And so that's the question that Paul has to address in Romans chapter 9 through to 11. The, the issue of well, what's happened to Israel, what's happened to the Jews. Uh, and it's probably a pretty serious issue in particular at Rome because when we look at chapter 14, as, as Jim already pointed out last week, there's evidence that there's a bit of friction between the Jews and Gentiles, that is the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church at Rome. Uh, and probably, uh, at least part of what was happening, is that some Gentile Christians were looking at the Jewish Christians and saying, well, God's finished with the, the Jewish race. That, that's, you done, you were so unfaithful that you've been replaced. And so Paul then has to explain that actually God hasn't abandoned his promises to ethnic Israel. And specifically, he argues in these, in these first verses of chapter 9 that the reason why God hasn't abandoned his faithfulness to his people Israel is that it was never God's intention to save all of ethnic Israel. Rather, there, there were specific children of promise that God promised to save. And it's only those that God chose to save that they're actually the recipients of the promise. And so God, um, or Jim explained to us in Romans chapter 9 verses 6 to 13 that God chose Isaac over Ishmael, God chose Jacob over Esau, and it's God's prerogative to choose some people over others. And if that's then how God works, then it shouldn't be surprising that not all of ethnic Israel is saved because God chooses some Jews to be saved and he doesn't have to choose all of them. That then opens up a whole can of worms, doesn't it? Um, if God chooses some people to be saved and not others, then a whole host of objections spring to mind. Um, a whole range of complications arise because does that not then make God unfair for choosing some people over others? Does that not make God unjust? And if God chooses some people over others, does that not then mean that we're robots and that we're not responsible for our actions before God? How can God hold us responsible if his will is ultimate? And, and if he chooses some people over others, does that then not mar God's gracious character so that he is arbitrary, right, capricious. And so what then Paul has to do in verses 14 through 29 this morning is to deal with these kinds of objections that arise from what he's just said in the first 13 verses. 
But before we look at those verses, then, I want to briefly check out understanding correctly what Paul is saying in this chapter. So what I'm suggesting is that what Paul is saying in this chapter is that God chooses individuals to be saved and to show his grace to. And this is then what he means when he talks about Isaac being chosen, when he talks about Jacob being chosen. Now there are some believers, good believers, that would disagree with how I'm interpreting this text. And they would say that I'm misunderstanding Paul because perhaps after all, what God is talking about when he's talking about choosing Isaac or choosing Jacob is not about choosing them for salvation, but about choosing them for a particular service and a particular purpose. That is, God is choosing them to be the means of bringing covenant blessing to the world. So it's not about salvation, it's about service. But I think if you look at the broader context of what Paul's arguing in Romans 9 through 11, yes, he is interested in service, but he is particularly interested in salvation. And so when he says in verse 3 of chapter 9 that he wishes he was cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, he's interested in their salvation. And that becomes really clear when you get to chapter 10 and verse 1, and he says very specifically, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so Paul's concern in these chapters, yes, it's about service, but primarily it's about salvation. Paul isn't just interested in historical destinies or uh, service in this world or in God's covenant purposes, but Paul is interested in the salvation of people. Another suggestion might be, that actually Paul isn't talking about individual salvation in these verses, rather what Paul is talking about is the salvation of groups of people. Uh, and so Paul's concern is that Israel as a nation has not been brought to salvation, but rather those who are in Christ have been brought to salvation. And so then it's not individuals that are chosen, it's people that belong to those groups then that are chosen for salvation. There's a bit of truth in that. Uh, Paul is concerned about groups and God is concerned about groups but the idea that God might choose groups of people doesn't actually do away with the idea of God choosing individual people and when we look at these verses we do actually see that God does choose individuals he chooses uh, Isaac over Ishmael he chooses Jacob over Esau uh, and according to verse 18 he has mercy on whomever he wills it's an individual focus and then when the objector comes in in verse 19 who's very concerned about what Paul is saying He's concerned about the individual implications of what Paul is saying. How can a single person resist God's will? And then in verse 24, when Paul talks about those who are called and chosen to belong to God, he talks about those who are called out from the Jews and the Gentiles, called out from collective groups. So, in short, I think what Paul is saying in these verses is that God chooses specific individuals to be saved and to know him. And then this is the issue which he has lots of concerns about that he actually has to address. Uh, the reason why I mention these different previous viewpoints and um, looking at this chapter is because I realise that this is an issue that good Christians do disagree over. And I don't want to pretend that there aren't other ways of interpreting or understanding this passage. It's just I don't find those interpretations particularly convincing, which is why what I'm offering this morning is my humble efforts in understanding God's word and 
if you do disagree with me, please understand that it's not because I'm trying to be controversial or trying to be awkward or trying to stir things up. It's simply because I'm trying to be faithful to the text uh, as God has given me insight. So with that aside, let's listen to how Paul deals with these objections to what he has argued in the first 13 verses. So we'll begin reading it from chapter 9 and verse 14. And this is what God's word says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to me, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is God's holy way. So then, after Paul has set out his argument in the first 13 verses that God can choose whoever he wants to choose, then he starts to deal with these objections that come to mind. And so the very first of these objections begins for us in verse 14. Paul asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust for choosing some over others? And that's a very natural question to ask. The idea that God would choose one person for salvation and not choose another person makes us concerned that actually God is being unfair. But Paul responds with a very definite no, by no means, he says, and he quotes from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, where God speaks to Moses and reveals his character and says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul's point then is that God's salvation is always an exercise of his free choice. He distributes mercy to whoever he wants to have mercy, and it's not unjust of God to show mercy to whoever he wants to. And it's not an issue of justice then, because if justice were to be strictly applied, then every one of us deserves condemnation and deserves to go to hell. So it's not an issue of justice, it's an issue of 
God can show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy to, because that's his prerogative. And after all, salvation is not a self-help project. Salvation is salvation. That's why Paul continues in verse 16, and he says, So that it depends not on human will or exertion, that is him who runs, but on God who has mercy. See, if we were saved through our own will or through our own efforts, it would no longer be salvation, being rescued by God. It would be a self-help project, and all the credit would go to us, and it wouldn't go to God. But Paul is very emphatic that all the credit has to go to God, because salvation is a work of God. And it's because he shows mercy on people that just do not deserve it at all, cannot save themselves. And on the flip side then, if God is not obligated to save anyone and salvation is an exercise of his free choice, then he's perfectly at liberty to confirm those people in their hardness of heart who refuse to listen to God and refuse to obey him. And that's why then Paul goes on to talk about the instance of Pharaoh in verse 17. God says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And of course, you remember that great story in Exodus, don't we, where Pharaoh refused to let the people go, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He cemented Pharaoh in his rebellion. And this happens even before Pharaoh refuses to let them go, before even Moses goes to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 4, 21, God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. But the whole point of hardening, of course, is that it's hardening what's already there. Uh, Pharaoh, he wasn't made disobedient or rebellious by God. Pharaoh was disobedient and rebellious, and God hardens that. He cements and confirms Pharaoh in his stubbornness, and this is God's prerogative to do that. God is, God is not unjust to do that. And so Paul's summary to this objection is in verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now it's important to ponder the implications of this, isn't it? Because if we ask ourselves the question, why are we saved and others aren't? What answer do we give to that? Why are we saved and others aren't? Now, at one level, we could say that we are saved and others aren't. It's because we responded to the call of God in the gospel, and that's why we are saved. But that's not entirely satisfactory, because you've got to push it a little bit further and say, well, why did we respond to the call of God in the Gospel, and others haven't responded to the call of God in the Gospel? And here you've either got, you've got one of two options. Either you say it's because of something that we have done, or it's something that God has done. There's no other ways about it. Well, if we say that it's because we were more willing to listen to God's call, then immediately Paul strikes that down and says that's not an option because he already says that it, it doesn't depend on him who wills or him who wants. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion. It's not a bypass. Which then leaves us only one option. Is if it's not because we happen to be more willing and cooperative than some other people, then it's because of God's initiative. And we responded then to the call of God in the gospel because God worked in us and sovereignly made us responsive to him. Well, if that's true, then it means that it reveals something very important about the character of God's mercy towards us, because it means that God took a very particular interest in each one of us, and took a very particular interest in saving each one of us to show compassion towards us. Because it's possible to think about God's love in a very generic and general way. God loves the world, that's true, absolutely true. God loves the church in general, that's 
wonderfully true. But it's also true that God loves specific individuals and exercises his saving intentions lovingly towards those individuals. Us who are called by God know his mercy because God has chosen to show mercy to each one of us because he loved us specifically. When you realise that, it doesn't give you a sense of pride over anybody else whereby you think, oh, I'm special and others aren't. It gives you a sense of amazement that God would love specifically us because we didn't deserve it. We're not, we're not better than anybody else. It's because God in his sovereign grace chose to meet with us in our need and to save us through his great grace. And then you sing with the hymn writer those words, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? While thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. And that's the grace of God. And Paul's point is that this is a marvellous truth. It's not unjust of God to show mercy on whom he wants to show mercy. Because if justice is giving people what they deserve, then every one of us will be sent to hell for all eternity. So it's not a matter of justice. God isn't unjust because he chooses to show mercy to anyone. It's wonderful that he shows us, that he chooses to show mercy to anyone and he chooses to show mercy to us. But there is another objection then that's raised. If God chooses whomever he wants to to be saved and to show mercy to, does that not then mean that we're all just robots? That we're not responsible for anything that we actually do in life? And so Paul, he raises this concern through his imaginary objector in verse 19. And this objector says, Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And that's a very good question, isn't it? Why does God find fault with anyone if God's will is ultimate? If God gets what he wants all the time, then, then why, can't, why do we just do what we want? God can't hold us responsible. How does Paul respond? Well, he says firstly in verse 20, But who are you, O man, mere man, to answer back to God? So what Paul's doing, first of all, is he's challenging the very idea that we can answer back to God. Why does he respond to the objector in this way? Well, notice, first of all, that yes, Paul does believe very firmly that God is sovereign. God, God's will is ultimate. But he also firmly believes that people are responsible for what they do. Now, this is the very basis for everything that he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, because he's already said that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance, but because of our hard hearts, we're storing up wrath for a day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so that argument only makes sense if, in fact, we are actually responsible, decision-making creatures. It only makes sense for God to judge us if we're actually responsible for what we do. So Paul is very firm in that. We are responsible for what we do. We do make our own decisions. God doesn't manipulate anybody into doing wrong. On the other hand, Paul doesn't try to fit these things together in some kind of philosophical way whereby we understand exactly how God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. It's, it's a mystery in many respects. And Paul doesn't try to explain how it all works out. And so then that's why Paul, he turns to his objector and he says, Who are you, O man, mere man, to answer back to God? And so he isn't trying to offer a detailed explanation of how it all fits together. 
you say rather that there's some things that we don't understand, and just because we don't understand them doesn't give us a right to then answer back to God and say that just because we don't understand something, then God can't hold us to account. Um, we are answerable to God, not the other way around. But Paul goes further than saying that we don't just that we don't understand God. He challenges the subjector's stance, and he basically says uh, to the subjector that that he's wrong, that his whole attitude is wrong, because the objector is saying that God isn't allowed to have a say in our lives, that God isn't allowed to be sovereign over us, because if God was sovereign over us, then, then we don't have any responsibility, and then God can't hold us accountable. And so this objector is defiantly saying to God that God can't hold him to account for all the wrong that he does, and Paul then says, hang on a minute, just because you don't understand how all this works together, just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that you're off the doesn't mean that you're not responsible for what you do. You're the one that's suggesting that you've got all the rights and God has no rights over you. And in fact, God does have rights over you because he is the one who created you. And so even while holding us, even while God is sovereign, he holds us responsible for the way that we act. Uh, and God then has sovereign rights over us as creatures. And Paul's analogy then is of the potter and the clay. The potter, he sits at his wheel, uh, and he fashions a vessel that he wants from the spinning wheel. And Paul imagines that the clay suddenly answers back to the potter and says, Why have you made me like this? And the analogy is absurd, isn't it? But he says that's exactly what it's like when the creatures answer back to God and say that God cannot be sovereign over us. Because God is. Because God is our creator, and he's got the right to do that. Paul says that the potter has the right to make one vessel for honourable use. He's got the right to make a vessel that he can set in his mantelpiece and another that he puts his kitchen scraps in. That's the, the right of the potter to make whatever he wants to do. And Paul says God has the right to exercise his sovereignty over human beings in whatever way he sees best. And as mere creatures, we can't argue with God about that. If God chooses that some people face punishment... And some people experience mercy. Who are we to then shake our fist at God and say, that's not right, you can't do that. So in short then, Paul, he doesn't answer the question of how sovereignty and responsibility fit together. So much as problematize the question of this objector, that we get off the hook, that we can absolve ourselves of responsibility if God is sovereign. Because... We are mere creatures, and God is the creator. Now there's an important point here in, Paul actually, in how Paul actually deals with this objection, because sometimes people's objections to the gospel and objections to God aren't intellectual objections, but they're rooted in intellectual arrogance. Sometimes people will say something like, well, if God's sovereign, then I'm off the hook, just as this person said to Paul. Sometimes they'll say other things. They'll say, like, I could never believe in God who would send people to hell. Now, when someone raises a, a deep-seated concern for us to actually sometimes people's concerns aren't actually an intellectual concern at all. Sometimes it's just deep-seated arrogance, where they want to be able to dictate to God what he can and what he cannot do, and the terms in which they will actually cooperate with God. And in such situations in our evangelism, we've got to then try and discern where people are coming from. Are they genuinely sincere? 
Or are they just trying to shake their fist at God and say, well, they're not going to have God in God's terms because they don't like that very much. And so then we've got to give sincere answers to the sincere questions. Challenge people's defiance of God. What it is deep-seated defiance? Just as Paul highlights this arrogance here when the person objects to God being sovereign. So no, we don't understand it. But we can't then shake the fist at God and say just because we don't understand it that we're off the hook. Another, another question that arises with regards to God's sovereignty over us. If God shapes, uh, shapes us like vessels, some for honour and some for dishonour, what does this then say about God's character? Does this mar God's character? Make him arbitrary and capricious? Somebody that we can't trust very much because you know he likes some people and he doesn't like other people? Or does it show something else about God? Well, verse 22, Paul, he, he deals with this and he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? In other words, God wants to display his character through this sovereign choice of some and not others. What is it that he wants to display with his character? Well, it says that he wants to display the riches of his glory. He wants to display something magnificent about himself. But how do we see the magnificence of God in this? Well, it's in the fact that vessels of mercy see just how much mercy they've been given when they realise that of themselves they are no different from vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. When we realise that we were doomed to destruction just like the rest of mankind, then it highlights the grace of God that he would ever choose to save us, ever choose to reveal to us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see the grace of God when we aren't destroyed, and God chooses to save us for his glory. Paul then goes on to explain in verses 24 through to 29 that in God's gracious choice of a people from both the Jews and the Gentiles, the key feature of God that we see in it is not arbitrariness, it's not capriciousness, but is God's marvellous grace. Quotes from Hosea in beautiful words to show that we were once not God's people. We didn't deserve anything. We were not God's people. But now we are God's people. Now God calls us my people. Once we were not loved. But now we are beloved. Once we were not God's people. But now we are children of the living God. And in each of these beautiful contracts that brought before us is not the idea that it's arbitrary. But the fact that God's love is so great that it saves us from all of our all of our ill deserts to make us sons and daughters of the living God. God loves us deeply. In verse 27 again, Paul's point of the amazing grace of God. Even though there are lots of people God could save, God chooses only to save a remnant because that displays his sovereign grace. They don't deserve it, but he does it anyway. In verse 29, 
Paul quotes Isaiah again, and this time he says that if God hadn't intervened, what would have happened? We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve to be wiped out. We deserve to be burned up in eternal fire. But as it is, God has rescued us. God has preserved a few offspring of Israel, Paul says, to belong to him. And not only Israel, but God has preserved Gentiles as well, all to reveal the riches of his grace. So the question comes, does God's sovereign grace mar his character? No, it reveals his character. Because when God chooses us, even though we don't deserve his grace, even though we deserve nothing but judgment, God reveals to each one of us how deeply he loves us, how deeply he cares for us. He didn't have to, to save us, but he chose to save us because he wanted you specifically. And that's why I say that God's choice reveals the greatness of his character. But there's much more that I could say about these verses, and much more I could say about this topic, but I want to conclude with just a few reflections in general about what we've been reading. Firstly, if this is new to you, this way of thinking, or even if you're familiar with it, and it's, it's something that you don't like, it makes you deeply uncomfortable, then I think that's a natural reaction. Uh, when I first thought about God's actions in this way and God's sovereignty in this way, it was deeply uncomfortable for me and I didn't like it. Uh, and so what I would suggest then is just to think about it more. <coughs> Reflect on it. Don't reject it out of hand. Consider what the scripture says. Read the scriptures prayerfully and thoughtfully and see if in fact this is what God reveals of himself. Secondly, I would say, don't play off anything that the rest of Scripture says with what passages like this say. Because our goal is always to see how Scripture fits together. So don't make it like a zero-sum game where you've got this passage in one hand and you're going to play it off against another passage. Because there's many other passages of Scripture which reveal other emphases which I just haven't talked about this morning just because I haven't had the time. So Scripture talks about our responsibility towards God. How that we are decision-making creatures that are responsible for our actions. Other parts of Scripture emphasize that God has a genuine desire that all people to be saved, all people to be saved, and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's not contradicted by this. Um, other parts of Scripture reveal God's sadness over those who refuse to repent. We've got to account for the fact that the Lord Jesus wept over Jerusalem. That's the heart of God being reflected. Other passages of scripture show the necessity of preaching the gospel so that people would actually believe and be saved. Parts of scripture emphasize the importance of us praying so that God would actually act and save people that we long to see saved, and so on and so forth. There's many other counterpoints to this. None of those points go against what is said here, and we shouldn't play off different passages of scripture against each other. It's very difficult to understand how, sometimes how things fit together in Scripture. But in our efforts to try and see how they fit together, my caution then is that we be careful in not neglecting certain passages of Scripture just because it's difficult to see how they fit. Um, my third and final point then would simply be that when Scripture tells us things, it doesn't tell us these things so that we would have philosophical or even doctrinal disputes. 
But scripture tells us things because it wants us to understand God and to rejoice in God's goodness and grace towards us. And this truth is no different. I remember when it first hit me in a very real way, and I was driving home one night in Northern Ireland, uh, a good decade at least ago, and I remember I was listening to a sermon on this topic, and the preacher was talking about how God had chosen me even though he knew everything that I would do, the worst that I would do. That God chose me in advance knowing exactly what I was like and still he loved me. And it caused tears to stream down my face as I realised the extent of God's love, the security of God's love that is brought to us through understanding that God has chosen us freely by his choice and not because of anything that we have done or deserved from God. And then it gives us then this assurance that we can know that God will finish the work that he has started in us. If he's chosen us despite no good in us, then he will surely finish the work that he has started. And when we grasp this truth, then it causes joy to spring up within us. And we can sing with Robert Murray McShane, that we're chosen not for good in me, weakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Saviour's side by the Spirit sanctified. So teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Yeah. And that's it. It's about realising just how much we owe to the grace of God so that that will be revealed in our lives through love to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we deal with complex and difficult subjects like the one we're dealing with this morning, we do so reverently. We want to understand exactly what you say to us. We pray that you would give us wisdom so that we wouldn't misunderstand you. And if in any way we fall short, Lord, then we pray by your Spirit you would give us insight. And we pray that as the truths of Scripture sink into our hearts, that they would cause joy to spring up within us, and that they would cause us to rest more surely in your loving arms, and know that despite no good in us, you have chosen us through free grace to belong to you. And we can know that you'll finish the work that you've started. And that you will bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom. So be with us for the rest of this Lord's Day. Bless the gospel as it is preached later today. We pray that you would bring sinners to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his matchless condescension in coming into this world and dying for them for their sins. We pray that as we part over this holiday season that you would watch over us, that you would preserve our land from the pandemic and that you would enable us to meet again soon in January and that over the next year then we would know your grace and that we would know your saving power in our midst, bringing sinners to know the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and for their joy. We ask these things then in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.